Will you walk into my parlor? said the spider to the fly. Tis the prettiest little parlor that you ever did spy. The way into my parlor is up a winding stair, and I have many curious things to shoo when you are there. Oh, no, no, said the little fly. To ask me is in vain, for who goes up your winding stair can never come down again. This episode of History Obscura is brought to you by Stamps.com. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly one million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and standard printer, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. And with my promo code POD, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in P-O-D. That's stamps.com. Promo code P-O-D. Never go to the post office again. Hello, welcome to the History Obscura Reading Room. The shelves are simply bursting with stories that want to be read during the spooky season, so much so that it gets difficult to choose. Yet, much like Doctor Who, I have access to all space and time, but have a particular fondness for Victorian London. And so... Once upon a time, death was very big business indeed. As you already know, Victorian London was a place of festering wounds, bloodletting, cesspools, and infestation. The 19th century English capital was also the right place, at the right time, for all sorts of frailties and diseases that killed thousands and thousands of people, from typhoid to smallpox. Doctors of the Victorian era understood relatively little of the illnesses they treated fruitlessly with poultices, leeches, and various powdered poisons. They also understood remarkably little about death, which is a bit concerning considering how often they encountered it. Death, for 19th century Londoners and the like, was a very big deal. People did their utmost to arrange fine, respectable burials for their families and mark the occasion with its due share of pomp and circumstance. Funeral biscuits were carefully baked and stamped and sent to friends and family of recently deceased people as invitations to the church service and burial. Special black crepe morning dresses were painstakingly crafted in keeping with the example set by no less than Queen Victoria herself. Having donned all black clothing after the death of her husband, Prince Albert, in 1861, the British Queen never again wore another color. It was her sign of continued respect to her late husband. 
Of course, not everybody could afford the exquisite morning rituals and clothing that mimicked that of the queen. Poor laws decreed that anyone unable to provide for the burial of themselves or their family members would receive a pauper's burial in a common grave. This took care of the disposition of a cadaver. However, it consigned a deceased person to anonymity for the rest of time. No one would be able to find their grave in the future to visit or mourn or ask any questions. It seemed to erase one's existence completely from the earth. In early 20th century, the Blackpool Gazette reported that 4,000 people visited the local cemetery each Sunday at the height of the morning season. These people would bring flowers to place on the graves of their deceased friends and family, much like we do today, but in much larger numbers and with high frequency. This behavior was in stark contrast to the graveyards of just a century before, when burial grounds were avoided due to the stench and pestilence. Before the Victorian era, coffins were stacked one atop the other in 20-foot-deep shafts, the topmost body mere inches from the surface. Putrefying bodies were frequently disturbed, dismembered, or destroyed to make room for newcomers. Disinterred bones, dropped by neglectful grave diggers, lay scattered amidst the tombstones. Smashed coffins were sold to the poor for firewood. Clergymen and sextons turned a blind eye to the worst practices because burial fees formed a large proportion of their income. But macabre scenes awaited those who pried too closely into the gravediggers' work. One witness during the era wrote, I saw them chopping the head of his coffin away. I should not have known it if I had not seen the head with the teeth. I knew him by his teeth. One tooth was knocked out and the other was splintered. I knew it was my father's head, and I told them to stop, and they laughed. Between 1852 and 1899, 45 Acts of Parliament were passed to regulate and sanitize the burial process in England. Throughout the 19th century, funerary culture evolved rapidly. According to Sir Edwin Chadwick, who wrote in 1843, the desire to secure respectful interment of themselves and their relations is perhaps the strongest and most widely diffused feeling amongst the laboring classes of the population. Subscriptions may be obtained from larger classes of them for their burial, when it can be obtained neither for their own relief in sickness, nor for the education of their children, nor for any other object. Popular journals of the time, such as Castles and The Queen, published very detailed instructions on appropriate mourning etiquette. Everything from one's clothing to the black border around funeral announcement letters was affected according to the relationship of the deceased and the person in mourning. If your husband died, etiquette was different than if your mother or cousin died. For the deepest mourning, clothes were to be black, symbolic of spiritual darkness. Dresses for deepest mourning were usually made of non-reflective Parramatta silk or the cheaper bombazine. 
Many of the widows in Dickens' novels wore bombazine. Dresses were trimmed with crepe, which is a hard, scratchy silk with a peculiar crimped appearance produced by heat. Crepe is particularly associated with mourning because it doesn't combine well with any other clothing. You can't wear velvet or satin or lace or embroidery with it. After a specified period, the crepe could be removed, and this was called slighting the morning. The color of cloth lightened, as the morning went on, to gray, mauve, and eventually white, called half-morning. Jewelry was limited to jet, which is a hard black, coal-like material sometimes combined with the woven hair of the deceased. Men had an easier time of mourning. They simply wore their usual dark suits along with black gloves, hat bands, and cravats. Children were not expected to wear mourning clothes, though girls sometimes wore white dresses. The relationship of you and the deceased had an effect on the length of mourning. The different periods of mourning dictated by society were expected to reflect your natural period of grief and therefore widows were expected to wear full mourning for two years. Everyone else presumably suffered less. For children mourning parents or vice versa, the period of time was one year. For grandparents and siblings, six months. For aunts and uncles, two months. And for great-uncles and aunts, six weeks. First cousins earned four weeks of mourning. Someone had to provide the clothes quickly to mourners, and many shops catered to the trade. The most popular and largest of them in London was Jay's of Regent Street. Opened in 1841 as a kind of warehouse for mourners, Jay's provided every conceivable item of clothing you and your family could need. And you were bound to be repeat customers, since it was considered bad luck to keep mourning clothes particularly crepe, in the house after mourning ended. These people were not only somewhat fixated on the ritual of funerals and mourning, but they were also quite fearful of their own deaths. The term for it is taphophobia, or the fear of being buried alive. In 17th century England, it's documented that a woman by the name of Alice Blunden was buried alive. Many other stories have been circulated as well. As Alice's story goes, she was so knocked out after having imbibed a large quantity of poppy tea that a doctor holding a mirror to her nose and mouth pronounced her dead. Tea made from dried, unwashed seed pods would have contained morphine and codeine, which are, in case you did not know, powerful sedatives. Alice's family quickly made arrangements for her burial, but two days after she was laid in the ground, children playing near her grave heard noises. Their schoolmaster went to check the gravesite for himself, and he found that Blunden was still alive, but it took another day to exhume her. She was so close to death, that it was not long before she was returned once more to her grave. There were a series of inventions in the 19th century which would aid someone, who was buried alive, to escape, breathe, 
and signal for help. One of these, patent number 81,437, was granted to Franz Vester on August 25, 1868, for, to quote, an improved burial case. This tomb is equipped with a number of features, including an air inlet, a ladder, and a bell, so that the person, upon waking, could either climb the ladder to safety, or pull a lever and be saved, literally, by the ring of a bell. Thank you for listening. Please check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash history obscura, or check out the show links to see how to buy us a nice cup of tea. Either way, your support is very much needed and appreciated. Good night. (laughs) 